This is the Sermon Podcast of Lord of Life Lutheran Church in Columbus, Ohio, where we proclaim God's extravagant grace, radical inclusion, and relentless compassion. Join us for worship Sundays at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., or 11.15 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.acceptingall.com. The first lesson is from the 8th chapter of Amos. Hear this, you that trample on the needy, and bring to ruin the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath so that we may offer wheat for sale? We will make the ephah small and the shekel great, and practice deceit with false balances, buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and selling the sweepings of the wheat. The Lord has shown by the pride of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. The second lesson is from the second chapter of 1 Timothy. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is also only one mediator between God and humankind, Jesus Christ, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. For this I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 16th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that the man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give me accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. And then the manager said to himself, what will I do now that the master is taking this position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. So I've decided what to do so that when I'm dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of oil. He said to him, well, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 50. Then he asked another, how much do you owe? And he replied, a hundred containers of wheat. And he said to him, well, take your bill, make it 80. His master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it's gone, they may welcome you into eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. Whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with dishonest wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. 
the gospel of the Lord. Grace and peace be yours from the one who is our strength within the sorrow and the beauty within our tears. Amen. Might be uh, hard for some of you to grasp this this opening today. Um, Talk a little bit about the Vietnam era. I I was in high school, so I don't lose anybody. Um, My father was a a patriot, uh, served in the Navy on aircraft carrier in World War II. My son is a Naval Intelligence Officer right now, went to the United States Naval Academy. The two things that I can remember the most, uh, the night that they published my draft numbers on television, which was um, August the 5th, 1971. I come home from college in between just to be at home the night that they put them on the, on the television. For those of you who don't know how that worked, um, they put all the days of the year in a tub with a little blue thing. A guy would reach in on TV and pull it out. And the first one, number one, that'd be the first person to be drafted. Number two would be the second person to be drafted. Number three would be the third. This was the third time they had done that. The first time they, they went to 175 that year. And then in 1970, they went to 95. And so when my number came out, 173, I pretty likely would not be drafted. I think I would have gone. I use the word think. I, I know that I didn't want to go. And I'm exceedingly thankful for those who did serve in my place. But I was very scared about the whole idea. Those of you who know me, I'm not exactly the, the military personality. <laughs> Structure somewhat of a challenge to me. But I was also not sure of what we then could talk about, but it seems like we can't talk anymore about it. Is, is it really just? Is it a just war? One of my neighbors, who was every bit as loud as this bumper sticker, had a bumper sticker on his car that said, love it or leave it. I heard he and my father talk about that often. So what I remember that night, most of all, when my number came up was that I was really relieved, just totally relieved. The other thing that I remember that night was my father giving me a big hug. Uh, that didn't happen all that much in my life. And I only saw him do this a couple of times his entire life. He cried in front of us. And I think it was tears of joy. 1971, I was 17 years old. I felt like the whole world was falling apart. Um, As a college freshman, gone to play sports, had already pulled out of that. My high school classmates, many of them had been drafted and several of them had died. Kent State University, which I was familiar with because I was originally from Ohio, was on fire. And I never marched any kind of like protest march or anything like that, although Indiana was kind of a hotbed for that. I just remember the feeling that the whole world is falling apart, and I don't have a single clue what I should be doing about that. And to be really honest, church didn't help. It didn't help at all. And that's what I want to talk about today. Uh, I want to talk about being church when you really don't know what's going on and what to do. Um, And I'm going to use all three of the lessons. Uh, I want to talk about that feeling of frustration and helplessness and hopelessness when you love God and you love your family and you, you, you love the world, but you sense that there's something wrong and you're not sure what it is and you can't think of anything that you can do about it. And frankly, I want you to hear that. I think there are a whole lot of people who feel that way right now about the American political system. 
I think they feel that way about racial tension in this country, about economic disparity in this community and in the world, about global warming. And there's this sense that, that the country or maybe the whole world is like going to hell. And the issues are very, very complex. And there isn't a bumper sticker out there that's going to work. And it's like, because of that, that they're complex and there's no simple solution, it's like we've defaulted to just calling each other's names. Or, or worse, shooting at each other. Now, surely you know someone who doesn't know what to do about something in their life, right? Surely. I mean, it's not just the meta application. There's, there's always the micro application. Uh, relationships, uh, finances, um, illnesses, uh, dependency issues that you can't seem to control. Uh, got a hamstring pull has been bugging me for about a month, and I'm getting increasingly fond of George Carlin's line that old age is coming at an inconvenient time. A whole lot of people are just disillusioned, despondent, confused. And there's probably not a person here who hasn't said, God, life is confusing. Save us from the time of trial, we pray kind of glibly, and deliver us from evil. (laughs) All three of the lessons speak to that subject. Frankly, any one of them could provide a whole sermon on its own, but each by itself doesn't give a full enough picture, so I I want to cover all three today. First reading is from Amos. Uh, Amos the prophet, Amos the social activist par excellence, Amos in your face on behalf of God. We rarely ever read Amos in worship. And when I say that, let me say it more clearly. Once every three years, we read those three sentences. And Amos, man, Amos says some harsh, harsh things. Let me boil down what he said today. Hear this, you dishonest scum. You cheated the poor just to fill your own wallets and your own stomachs. And God sees what you're doing, and God is not going to forget. Whoa. Sometimes we are so overwhelmed by evil in the world that we forget to call it evil, or worse, we just put our our heads in the sand. Evil exists. Uh, It's out there. And frankly, it's in here, and it's in here. Being church is not about turning a blind eye to evil, and it is biblical to point the finger. Nobody ever did that better than famous Amos in Scripture. It's six chapters. Go read it. Parents, I encourage you to read it first before you read it with your children. And one of the tensions of being church today is how can we point the finger at evil and call it what it is? How to advocate for the poor and the vulnerable, to see what God sees and to speak up and not empty the pews and do it with mercy and grace of Jesus. So that's Amos. Uh, The second reading is almost like the diametric opposite, especially if you don't get deeper into it. Compared to Amos, frankly, it sounds a little mushy. It definitely sounds churchy. Uh, Paul is writing to a fellow disciple, a friend, Timothy, giving him some spiritual advice about how to live. And he says, first of all, pray. Anybody have people tell you that? First thing you need to do is pray about it. Oh, okay, great. Now what are we going to do? First, pray about it. 
I urge, he says, that supplications and prayers and intercessions, and you might want to spend a little time on what's the difference between those three, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for all people. Everyone is loved by God. That's the principle. Christ died and rose for everyone. So pray for everyone. All means all. It's one of our core values here at Lord of Life Church. Core value means this is how we go about being the church. Prayer is necessary for our relationship with God and with each other and with the world. We're to pray for everyone. 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 Even kings. Even corrupt kings. Even pagan kings. We're to pray for people in high places. We're to pray for parents, for teachers. We're to pray for presidential candidates, all of them. Or even to pray for pastors. Pray for everyone. Parents, go into your children's room at night. Put your hands on them and just pray for them. Ask God to help them. And children, whether you are three or 13 or 63, and whether your parents sitting with you right now or already at the great banquet in heaven, pray for your parents. It's a commandment that we pray for our parents. I pray for you. It doesn't often come up on what does a pastor do list, uh, but you've all, all the members of this church got a postcard in the last six months. I just prayed for everybody in this parish. I take the little cards, Sue Shuff prints them out for me. I go in the prayer chapel, and I just pray for you, and I ask God to bless you. And when we're working on our bulletins, on our orders of worship, I come, I sit in the sanctuary and walk through the bulletin before we print it. And, and I pray for who's going to be here and who's going to sing these songs. And, and I want to ask you right now if you'll pray for me. Uh, you don't have to be my best friend. You don't have to like me. You don't have to know anything about me. But pray for me because I'm pastor of, of this church. Pray for me. Thank you. Pray for the church. Pray for the world. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your enemies. G.K. Chesterton once said, it should be no surprise that those are actually the same people, your neighbors and your enemies. Best example I know, uh, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And a lot of people always want the last words of Jesus. It should be called the last prayers of Jesus. He's having a conversation, which is all that prayer is. He's having a conversation with our heavenly father and he's pointing the finger. Father, he says, forgive them. You don't ask people to forgive people things that they don't need forgiven of. Forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. You can be totally at odds with someone. You can be pointing the finger at them. They can be nailing you to the cross, but you need to pray for them. The gospel reading, on the other hand, is a lot more complex, and frankly, it scratches where I itch and my, my personality type. Namely, it's not contrary to God's will not contrary to being a person of faith, not contrary to being the church, that you would use your brain. You don't check your brain at the door when you come into the church. It's so basic, but if, if God created us and made us in the very image of God, and if God gave us brains, then my hunch is that God wants us to use those brains for the sake of the world. So Jesus gives us this unusual example there's an entrepreneur, and he's about to get canned, so he cuts short-term earnings for long-term profits. And I just intentionally use that language because that's business 101, and that's where I learned it at. Cut short-term earnings for long-term profits. That's not some big new thing. 
This is how Jesus sums it up. He says, the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world than are the children of light. And then he adds, it just shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. Faithful people cannot afford to let the children of this world do all the shrewd thinking. Pope Francis, after praying silently a couple months ago in a German concentration camp, startled me, frankly, when he said this. From now on, it's only through conscious choice, through wise and deliberate decisions, that humanity can be saved. Whoa. Now, the Pope recognizes sin. I mean, he's been pointing his finger at the same greed and capitalism that we're wrestling with. And certainly the Pope prays, duh, for everyone. But if the church thinks that all you have to do is just pray and point your finger, then we're going to be sadly mistaken and we're abandoning the world. We can't solve the threat of nuclear destruction and global distribution of wealth and racism and nationalism and climate change by just getting together once a week and pointing our finger at evil things and praying about it. Much less we can't solve them by taking sides on the name of God and calling each other names or, or worse. It's going to take shrewd children of the light. That's Jesus' word. Shrewd children of the light who are willing to use our, our hands, our hearts, but also our heads to protect us from self-destruction. Now, what I loved about the opening today Suzanne says a lot going on in her life, probably a lot going on in everybody's life, and none of us really handle that all that well. And if you come to the Christian faith with the idea that if you're faithful enough, all of that goes away, I need to dispel you of that for just a moment. Um, There's always going to be times of confusion for anyone who wants to follow Jesus. And the reason for that is because we've got one, one foot firmly planted in this world, but we also have another foot firmly planted in the other world. Eternal life is already one for all of, all of creation. And, and when you're in the midst of those two worlds, there's going to be tension, there's going to be anxiety. And those are the moments, those are the moments we need to cling to Jesus the most. And we need to cling to the hope that is ours in Christ. Because that, that is what's going to motivate us toward a different future. I'm reminded that it was a group of people who frankly were just, just like us. Um, it's something I think we, we forget often when we're reading scripture. Uh, there, there aren't superheroes in the Bible, it's just people just like us. And they were just as confused, they were just as uncertain about what was going on. This was the situation. The bottom had fallen out in the world. Uh, the bottom. The empire and religion had both gone bad. And then Jesus arrives. And this is what Jesus did. He pointed his finger at both those, at the empire and at the religious authorities. One he called a brood of vipers and the other called a bunch of hypocrites. That's pointing the finger. And then he taught his disciples to pray. And then he encouraged them to use their gifts wisely in the world. And the worst possible thing that could have happened after that, it did. It got worse. It didn't get better. It got worse. They nailed Jesus to a cross, shoved him in a grave, put a rock over top the opening. Now, now where are they? Now they're stunned. Now they're hiding. 
Now they can't imagine anything worse. They're unable or they're unwilling to point the finger anymore out of fear. They're not really sure that anybody's listening to their prayers. And frankly, they probably can't even think straight amidst all the confusion, all the grief that they're in. And it is at that moment that the risen Lord Jesus appears to them in an upper room. At that moment, in the midst of all of the confusion, he says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. So yes, here's what our calling is. We are to confront evil for what it is. We are to pray for one another, even those in authority over us. And we are to use our noodle, do everything that we can. But most of all, in the midst of all that, we are not to be afraid because Christ is with us. Amen.